You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, and I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. I'm excited to introduce our guest for today. We've got Lee Camp. He is the professor of theology and ethics at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of a a recent book that just came out. It's an excellent one, and we'll be talking about that in a second. It's called Scandalous Witness, A Little Political Manifesto for Christians. Um, He's also the author of of a book called Mere Discipleship, Radical Christianity in a Rebellious World, which um, was the first book that I was introduced uh, to his work through. He's the host and creator of Token Show, a live theological variety show staged most often in Nashville with resources online, as you can find it at tokensshow.com. He's married to Laura, and he's the father of three sons. Um, and he's proud to report that he was one of Jared's first uh, professors many moons ago. And so we'll have to <laughs> hear some stories about that in a little bit. We'll hold on, we're, but we're going to get the scoop on Jared in a second. Um, but if you want to get more information, um, you can find it uh, more about Lee at leeccamp.com. Um, and so before we do anything else and before we get the scoop on Jared, um, we would love for you to just... Um, tell us what passage that you um, have chosen, and can you just read that text for us right off? The sure. Yeah, first, uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's a privilege to get to be here, and uh, delight to meet you, Drew, and uh, wonderful get to be with uh, Jared again, and uh, always wonderful to spend time with Jared, and I get to see him occasionally in Nashville, so yeah, I look forward to telling more stories about that here in a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I chose... Um, uh, perhaps one of the classic turn the world upside down texts out of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so I'll start, I'll read uh, two of these paragraphs from Matthew chapter five, starting verse 38. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Um, and we're looking forward to, in a, in a little bit, um, unpacking that passage with you. Um, but I do want to, like I said, um, I'd love to hear at least one Jared story from, from his college days. We've got to hear at least one story I'm sure that you've got. What was Jared like? Um, was well, he wreaking havoc on campus? Well, I, I, I recollect uh, primarily that um, he was a very... Um, What's the right word? Um, earnest. He was very earnest. He was very earnest. earnest. 
Okay. And a uh, very earnest young man. Uh, and and that, um, that was just a phase, Lee. That's, yeah. that's changed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, are pro- there are probably uh, police officers in Australia who wish that it had been just a phase. I think I remember seeing sometime in the last couple of years, you hanging on the side of a building, which looked That's like right. you were still being quite earnest, I think. So, yeah, I, I actually don't like heights. So um, I still, I still blame your class. Uh, so I did um, <laughs> introduction to biblical ethics with Lee in, uh, well, as you say, in North America, fall of uh, 2001. So I, I was there for um, September 11th, which had a, um, a massive impact on on me, as did Lee's class. I, I seriously think it's his fault. Um, half the things that I, I was just like a, a nice uh, progressive emerging church kind of type before um, <laughs> uh, Lee radicalized me and, and r- ruined all the uh, uh, opportunities I had at success. So it's your fault, Lee. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like what I said to Stanley Harawas one day as well. <laughs> Well, what a lineage. We're just passing it on. And that's what Stanley said to me. So we're just passing it on. I'm just passing on to you what I got from somebody else, you know. So <laughs> we, the kind of the kind of ruin, ruining of one's lives, we just pass it on. Well, maybe maybe I'll say uh, what I remember of, of Lee. Um, a, how entertaining class was. Uh, and, and you get that in reading Lee as well. Like, um, if it's who is my enemy or mere discipleship or, or now a scandalous witness, um, you're funny, Lee. And uh, <laughs> n- not just funny, but it was weird for me as an Australian to be in Nashville where everybody sounds funny. And yet people in Nashville are making fun of your accent, which was <laughs> extra funny for, for me because um, you're not a native Tennessean, but no. you're actually from Talladega? Talladega, Alabama. <laughs> which uh, if, if it wasn't for uh, Ricky Bobby, um, we no one would know anything about yeah. no, nothing uh, about whatsoever. Um, yes. So thank you. Uh, eight pound, six ounce infant baby Jesus. Yeah. Infant baby Jesus. Yes. <laughs> which is one of the finest, finest cultural productions of Hollywood ever. <laughs> yeah. Sweet little baby Jesus. Um, um, no, but Lee's, uh, what impressed me most is the way that you held um, space after September 11th for a whole heap of diverse people who um, uh, couldn't lament through nationalism mm-hmm. and without forcing um, uh, your own theological perspective, you created spaces, you and uh, uh, Dr. Richard Good as well, um, created spaces where people could come together and um, weep with those who weep and seek to um, actually take peacemaking seriously as um, people were grieving so deeply, so deeply. And uh, there's so many little things that have marked my life. I I remember one story, Drew, where um, Lee, I think it's called University Bible, which is like a, it used to be a class that um, everybody had to um, go to. Um, and so it's in yeah. this large, um, uh, building and, uh, everybody's there to, and they were working their way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which, uh, was somewhat awkward prior to September 11th, but became like downright tense, um, uh, after everything. And, um, 
uh, Lee gave this message, which I still have on tape here um, uh, somewhere. And, uh, and you gave this message and I came up to you afterwards and I said, you're a prophet. And you lovingly took me by the scruff of the neck and said something like, talking like that doesn't do you or me any good. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I'm glad I didn't have so much self-importance as to say thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, those, it's those little lessons like that um, that have deeply, deeply shaped me. So I'm, I'm glad we're spending time together, Lee. Me and too. I have a, a letter that you wrote um, me after uh, um, desolation in my life um, a, f a few years ago that is in my top drawer that every time I um, open my top drawer, um, your, your loving um, mentor, almost like how the Orthodox talk about um, elders, uh, uh, that you've been this, this loving presence for me throughout um, many seasons. So I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. So this should be fun and congrats on well, the that book. That means a lot to me. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that very much. Um, the, the book is fantastically, uh, as Stan the Man, how who you quoted earlier, um, says of it, a hopeful book that helps us know better how to hope, um, which if that's not needed at the moment, I don't know what is. Mm. Um, how long did it take you to, to write this? I wrote it over a long period of time, I, probably four or five years, actually. Um, mm. And well, I actually little... that gives me hope because, <laughs> like, it's so succinct and it, it's so yeah. um, brilliant. Uh, like your your fifteen propositions. Um, so the right, subtitle: right. A Little Political Manifesto for Christians. Um, uh, it's so succinct and so clear. It's a real gift to the church at this time. So thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, I write slowly, um, but it's also like you pointing it to being succinct. It's harder to write for me uh, being to speak succinctly or to write succinctly, I think, takes much more time. Hmm. Um, and then and then, too, it was um, I felt so discouraged, frankly, after my second book publishing experience that I didn't know if I would write again or publish again. Right, and right. I had been working on this project for some time. And then uh, Trevor Thompson from Erdman's happened to come by my office one day. Um, I guess it was probably this June will be two years ago. And he said, hey, we're looking for some projects that might look like such and so. And I said, well, I do have this one particular thing I've been messing around with. And, I, and uh, so one thing led to another. And pretty soon we had a contract rolling. But I, I think apart from Trevor's encouragement, I don't know if I would have published it, but it's been, mm. I'm, I'm grateful to have it out and I'm grateful for the way, the very positive way in which people are responding to it so far. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I don't want to get us thrown off too much, but I'm intrigued that you've been working on this for so long. Cause I figured I was like, Oh, this is for our moments, but this is, wasn't <laughs> something that was just written for our moment. This was just, it's, you knew what, I mean, in some ways, it's what has always been, you know, a part of the problem of American Christianity for a very long yeah. time, right? Mm. But nonetheless, I think, you know, you feel it in these moments, um, especially. So it's, I'm surprised to hear that this wasn't written with our moment in, in mind. Yeah. 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 Well, and, you know, it definitely, I definitely think our contemporary context uh, puts a lot sharper point on a lot of the things that are discussed in the book. Um, yeah. But as you said, Drew, um, 
I think in many ways, the current socio-political context in which we find ourselves is in many ways just trends and trends that we've had in American Christianity, Western Christianity for decades now, centuries even, uh, right. that's coming to full flower, you know, gone to seed, as we would say in Alabama, you know, it's, it's kind of gone to seed and now we're seeing it in uh, very right. sometimes ugly ways. So Lee, talk us through that. How, how does one go from being from Talladega, Alabama to writing a scandalous witness? Um, uh, when do you first remember encountering the scriptures, uh, and was that something that turned the world upside down or was it something that propped the world up as it was? And what's <laughs> draw the dots for us between this book and um, when you were born, where you were born and, and that whole journey. Yeah. Well, um, I, w- I was really intrigued as I started thinking about knowing that you guys were going to ask me about this. Uh, I was thankful for the questions that you sent my way about thinking this through because um, as I think, for example, about this particular two texts I read about Eye for an Eye and about Love Your Enemies. Um, I grew up in a very highly sectarian, um, in many ways, my tradition did not fit the fundamentalist mm. tradition in certain ways, but we certainly did in our literalist readings of scripture and the ways we thought about scripture. Uh, but we were a different sort of movement um, that I'll talk about in a moment. But uh, because we were more American Anabaptists, um, but we had lost a lot of that by the time I was being raised. But mm. um, what we did have was a very high, even naive insistence upon taking scripture seriously. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as I was thinking about turn the other cheek, I was thinking about um, being in PE class. I think, I think it was seventh grade. And this, uh, this guy came up to me one day in PE class and he just slapped me literally on the cheek. Wow. And, um, he was, he was very aggressive and smacked me and I did not fight back. And the PE coach was this very, very strong, um, athletic muscular guy. And he came up and he, he realized what had happened and he realized the guy hit me and he realized I didn't hit the guy back. And he was as, he was as pissed off at the guy that hit me as he was at me. And, and so he turned to me and he said, why didn't you hit him back? And I said, and I remember I had this kind of tear, tear on my, on the corner of my eye. And I said, I don't think I was supposed to. And, um, and it was because I knew this text, you know? And, Mm. and so, we didn't have any sort of easy out at, at the level of personal relationships. It was, it was that you don't fight back. You don't hit back because that's what Jesus said to do. And so it was a very straightforward, even legalistic, mm. uh, naive reading, but serious reading of saying, this is what you're expected to do. So do it, you know, don't, don't hit back. And I remember my, like my own father, you know, my father was, it was a CPA all of his life, a very good businessman. And uh, I remember and, my and father. And Lee, translate for the Australian uh, CPA. I'm sorry. Uh, w- what's a CPA? Oh, sorry. A certified public accountant. Oh, there we go. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, and so uh, I remember that he had, um, he had invested in some oil wells in Kentucky, as I recollect. 
And he realized after a while that he was being defrauded of his investment and that he just wasn't getting any of his money back. And, um, and so he went through the process and another, as I recollect, I may not be remembering the details correctly, but as I recollect, there was somebody else that he knew that had made an investment that was suing the person. And uh, my dad told me, he said, well, I'm not suing him back. And I said, why? And he said, because Jesus says, if someone defrauds you, you, you take it, you don't try to get it back. And so mm-hmm. I'm not. Um, and so there's this very sharp insistence upon, you know, this is what Jesus tells us to do. And this is, this is the people that we are. And so we, we seek to obey the Lord in what the Lord's called us to do. Um, now that being said, um, we're simultaneously being formed in the nationalist narrative, right? So I also remember mm-hmm. in, in junior high, participate. I, this was probably fourth, well, this may be in fourth or fifth grade. I remember very clearly this old school building um, that was probably built in like 1890s or something. And um, that was having a bomb drill nuclear, you know, this is the middle of the cold war. And so occasionally we would go do the duck and cover thing in the hallways as if, wow. you know, if a bomb, a nuclear bomb hit that somehow that was going to save you. But that's what, you know, that's what you're doing. You're schooled in the, in the nationalist narrative. You're schooled of the enemy over there. And we never had any sort of consideration of the possibility that these texts would be taken seriously at that level. Mm. Um, and so there was a compartmentalization of these texts. And that didn't get begin to get challenged until I was in seminary. And then I began to learn some really amazing things about my tradition that I had no idea about. Hmm. So thinking about um, the ways that you, well, before you even, maybe I can go there. Like, so when, when we think about describing your own journey in the way that scripture was being read, like, would you say that it was something that was, liberative and turned the world upside down or would you say that it wasn't or was i mean it sounds like it, maybe it's a mix how, w- how would you give language yeah. to whether scripture was was being used in a way that turned the world upside down or not yeah i would definitely say it was a mix um there were ways in which um it sharply challenged the presumption of say personal retaliatory violence mm. Um, and yet there was a sort of legalism about our, our church context, uh, or the ways in which we read other particular so-called religious practices, uh, that fostered some pretty sharp, um, some pretty sharp uh, mechanisms of shame, I would say. Hmm. Yeah. And so in that way was not liberative at all. Um, yeah. Lee, can you say so more it, about it, that? Um, Shame's yeah. a, a very powerful word and motivator. Um, I'd be interested to hear what, like, what that actually looked like. Yeah. Well, um, Drew and I were talking before we started uh, recording here about our uh, mutual, uh, my colleague and the acquaintance of Drew's, uh, Richard Hughes, who used to teach at Messiah, now teaches at uh, Lipscomb, one of my colleagues now. And uh, Richard actually taught me a lot about the Anabaptist heritage of Churches of Christ. Um, but I remember I remember one time, the last time I was at Messiah, uh, visiting with Richard and, t- and lecturing some at Messiah, 
uh, as I recollect, Richard was, was laughing one day telling me this story about this student that he had had who had spent some time in Churches of Christ, uh, our tradition, and then had spent some time among the Mennonites. And Richard was laughing about how this student had said, when I was among the Church of Christ people, I was afraid I was going to go to hell for using instrumental, if I ever used instrumental music. And then I went to be among the Mennonites, and I was afraid I was going to go to hell for having braces on my teeth. And I just thought that was so fascinating, right? Is that, is that um, here you have these Mennonites who, at their best, are very good about this sort of nonviolence thing. And yet here you have this poor, poor kid, you know, adolescent, late adolescent kid who's afraid he's going to go to hell because he's got braces on his teeth. Mm. And it's just like, th that's, that's the way traditions work so often, right? Is that they, we have beautiful things about them. And then there are terribly um, impactful in, uh, damaging forms and mechanisms of shame or mechanisms mm. of bondage. And that's definitely the way it was in my tradition. There were beautiful things about it. And then there were other things about it that took me decades to work through and to deal with the sort of psychological impact of shame that uh, got laid on me. Yeah. Uh, there's a fascinating little paragraph in Mere Discipleship, which I, I, I run book studies for people all the time. I've probably run more book studies on Mere Discipleship than any other book. The, uh, mm -hmm. And that means you beat out um, the prophetic imagination. Um, uh, so <laughs> That's pretty good. I hope you um, mentioned that to Walter when you did. My yeah, I'll, I'll say it next time. Which, yeah. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> um, there's this, and uh, it, you're not even addressing atonement straight on, but you're talking about um, uh, how in some traditions uh, we're the legalist and in uh, other Christian traditions, God becomes the legalist and where it, the, the legalism is actually around, um, uh, did you say the magic words or um, did you speak in tongues or uh, were you baptised right or whatever, but the, um, how we see God actually... Uh, you know, it fuels and ignites and motivates um, our own living of discipleship. And it, it's a, a fascinating insight around how the, the frameworks or containers in which we encounter teachings, like the one that you've chosen for us um, in, in this episode, will actually motivate how we live those things out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's very well said. I mean, I, um, you know, my, my, well, I was teaching, paraphrasing you, Lee, so yeah. <laughs> hopefully you liked it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess I should have said that is brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the things that, um, has helped me in my teaching a lot and the way I frame, um, I don't, and I don't remember how much I was doing this when I was teaching your ethics class, uh, 19 years ago, but, uh, increasingly, I focused upon using virtue traditions as a way to frame up thinking about the moral life. Mm. And um, when you think about, you know, a, a teleological account, what's the end, the goal, the purposes, and then you think about virtues as habits and skills and dispositions that, that help us become that kind of people. Um, that completely changes. So, so a legalism is a rule that has lost sight of the end goal of what we're trying to be. Mm. Is, is the shorthand way of the way I think about legalism is it's it's a rule. The virtue traditions have rules, right? Tell the truth, um, practice fairness, justice, 
courage, prudence, temperance, and so forth. Or in the Christian tradition, you add faith, hope, and love. So there's rules, but the rules are always, you do these rules well or rightly only when everything about the practice of the rule, one's inner disposition with regard to the rule, the communal practices around the rule, all orient the person and the people towards the final goal. But if you lose sight of the final goal, then it's become a legalism or, it's, or even become corrupt. Um, and so one of the things I've been doing a little bit on um, our COVID-19 time is uh, I've been going picking back up Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where he talks about the practices of the virtues. And one of the things he reminds us of is that there are all sorts of ways to screw up a virtue. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, there's all sorts of ways to screw it up. Um, and, a, and a virtue is, is, uh, is one that's done in the right way, with the right intensity, with the right motivation, with the right purpose, with the right set of skills around that, right? And so it takes a lot of training. And so I think that's helpful in the sense that in any sort of get, like you take the, these two texts, right? You can screw these texts up in ways that they become mechanisms of oppression mm. um, as opposed to something that's fosters the liberation of the kingdom of God. And you can be focused really hard on these texts, right? Mm. But they, even they, even these texts can become mechanisms of oppression if not done well. Even in your sharing around um, your experiments with the teachings of Jesus as like a, a, a little kid, um, I uh, would say going into high school, but what were you like 12 years old or something like that? Lee? When yeah, you were prob yeah, probably. Um, there is, there is something about the, the practice of the teachings that in itself is liberative, but it's almost like you hit that glass ceiling of like, this doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't feel like the kingdom, like this doesn't yeah. <laughs> lead to anything that, um, and yet there is a, a beauty in that, and as you're talking about the different liturgies in which you're being formed of, uh, as if um, uh, Talladega um, would be a target of the Cubans or the Russians or whatever else. So right. the, the liturgy of everybody get under your school desk and um, duck and cover. That uh, I think that experience is very common for people, even if they don't have uh, something of the the rumor of the peace church tradition in their formation of when it comes to these teachings, which you've read, uh, I take it personally and it's an encouragement to, to suffer and somehow being a, a doormat is holiness. Uh, but when it comes to quote unquote real life, uh, then we have to appeal to something else. So I'll right. forgive personally, um, unless you uh, actually hit somebody else and then I have a responsibility. Um, uh, I think that's actually pretty common for a lot of people. Yeah. Yes, I, I think so. Um, but, I, but I think too, the, the, um, as you were saying that it, um, another, another thing that the virtue traditions teach us is that one learns to do this stuff only by doing it. In, even if you don't do it well. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's uh, one because so one of Aristotle's lines: one becomes courageous by doing courageous deeds. And uh, everybody, you know, for Aristotle, uh, when you have too much of what courage is, you become foolhardy, right? Mm. And you have too little of it, you're a coward, right? And so you can always be going off on either side of that. And you're only really going to find what is really courage uh, by practicing. And sometimes you'll overdo it, and sometimes you'll underdo it. And by overdoing it or underdoing it, you learn. Um, mm. And so it's that sort of practice, I think. 
that can be seen as this is what moral formation is about. This is what being form, formed as a disciple is about. Is you, you try and you have you have space even to make mistakes, and it's through those mistakes that you can learn a lot of stuff. It, I was also reminded of another sort of experiment. I remember. I think I was probably seventh grade also on this one. I remember we did, this is much more like Walter Wink's reading of, of these texts. Hmm. Um, one day at uh, the cat in the cafeteria, the bully was uh, sitting across the table from me and there was something on my tray. I don't remember what it was on my cafeteria school tray, but it was something that he wanted. I don't know, you know, it was, uh, veggie or dessert or something. I think maybe it was the dessert. And um, so he, he leaned across the table and got down real close to my tray and he spat into my dessert. And then he looked at me and he said, do you want that? And so I just looked at him and tried, and was thinking, what do I do? <laughs> because I didn't want to cowardly give it to him, right? right? I didn't want him to win. And so I don't know where this thought came from, but I leaned over my own tray and spat into my own dessert he said, no, I don't want it. Do you? <laughs> and I just thought, oh, you know, what a gift I was given right there to think of that. <laughs> yeah, man, that was clever. That's good. That's good. That's good. Well, on that note then, can you help us? Like, all right, so, I mean, I know there's probably listeners right now who are listening and they're thinking, this all sounds great, but, you know, when I read, you know, you know, turn the other cheek and, and the Sermon on the Mounts, especially if you're feeling like, you know, your community has been oppressed. This sounds mm -hmm. more like bad news. It doesn't sound like good news, right? Um, can you walk us through this text and, and help us see how this has the potential to turn the, the world upside down? Yeah. Um, well, um, certainly it is, it's, it's tempting to uh, explain it away from such a perspective. Um, and it, and it, in many ways I, I've got a, I, I should certainly acknowledge that, you know, I'm a, I'm a middle-class white man and, uh, I've not experienced, uh, oppression the way, um, many, many people have experienced oppression. Mm. Uh, and so I, I'm always aware of the fact that there's a danger in, uh, this academic speaking of these texts in this way. And so I don't take that lightly. Um, and yet just from the perspective of, of biblical studies, um, we have, we have Jesus teaching these things to an oppressed people mm -hmm. and it's an oppressed people over whom he grieves and, you know, not long before his crucifixion, we'll, we'll, we'll weep and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you'd only known of the councils that make for peace. Right. And, and in time, in a short period of time, uh, the city will be destroyed and many, many people will lose their lives and uh, their temple will be destroyed. And, um, and so they, and many people reject the way of Christ and then there are serious sociopolitical consequences of that. Mm. And... And then I combine that, for example, with, you know, some of the greatest moments in the American civil rights movement happened in Nashville. And mm -hmm. one of the, one of the great leaders, for example, James Lawson, uh, who, uh, trained in the ways of nonviolence. And then he, then he would take young people from, from Fisk and, 
a TSU and he, and he would teach them these ways of nonviolence. And then they would go to the, uh, to the lunch counters downtown Nashville and do these, do the sit-ins. Um, and they, they were able through such nonviolence to, you know, tear, turn the world upside down in Nashville. Uh, they were able to begin to um, bear witness to the final death pangs of that, those particular forms of oppression. Uh, and, and of course, through the pie, you know, we Christians have a gift in our doctrine of sin, because the doctrine of sin always reminds us that whatever steps forward you make, the power of sin is still going to come in and find a way to continue to corrupt it or pervert it. And the powers of oppression will always be taking whatever sort of mechanism is at place in that time and that place and try to employ it for the purposes of a death or the purposes of oppression. And so we're never, until the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, is, is consummate, we're always going to be having some new form of oppression that we have to find a way to bear witness against and to try to find a way to bear witness to some sort of redemptive alternative. Um, but this is what Jesus points us to. Is he points us to a third way, you know, and the way, the way Walter Wink, we'll talk about these texts, for example, that we alluded to a moment ago, is that there's, uh, there's fight and there's flight, and then Jesus keeps finding a way to point us to a third way. So it's not being a passive doormat. It's finding a way creatively to point to some um, redemptive possibility that doesn't do to them what they want to do to you or what they mm. are doing to you. Uh, and so I do, I do think that it opens up all sorts of space in very real, concrete, pragmatic ways uh, that something new can happen. Lee, uh, a couple of years ago, sorry, Drew. No, I'm just going to say, I mean, I know all, we all know Walter Wink's work, but I'm imagining that some folks may not know um, how he kind of reinterprets some of that. So you want to <laughs> unpack a little bit, like just give an example yeah, true. of uh, yeah, yeah. how Walter Wink is actually... interpreting some of that. I was actually just going to share on that. Um, okay, Lee, you, you mentioned Reverend Jim Lawson um, in Nashville. Uh, a number of years ago, I um, uh, was having lunch with him, which is like for me is incredible. Like, uh, um, you, you know, uh, I described it um, to my boy Tyson as like, this is kind of like me meeting LeBron James. Like it's, um, <laughs> uh, and he was like, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, but uh we were discussing and I was rightly nervous that, you know, here's the man who literally taught the pragmatics of transformative, nonviolent right. social change to Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah. And so um, uh, he starts talking about this particular passage. Um, uh, it was over eggs, actually. So maybe it was breakfast. Um, uh, and he, he had these little glasses on, and um, he started talking about this and I interrupted wanting to impress him because, you know, it's Jim Lawson and like, I'm excited. And, and um, I said to him, oh, the scholarship of Walter Wink has meant a lot to me as well. And he looks over his little glasses, doesn't move his head, but just over the top of his glasses, his eye just um, uh, look at me and he goes, oh, I've been teaching this a lot longer than from when Wink started to write it down. And, <laughs> and I, I like was like, ah, 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 like didn't know what to say. And mercif mercifully, like um, he, he, he smiled and uh, started to, to move on, um, which was really important for me because often the scholars that we quote around this, it's easy to sometimes do um, the, the story of the recovery of um, uh, like active Christian nonviolence and go through 
you know, um, whether we're going to start at like the influences of Thoreau and Tolstoy on Gandhi, we, we tell these stories of these white people that influenced um, uh, like this Indian in South Africa before he moved back to South Africa. Um, and Jim Lawson, one of the things he said to me is, I learned more about nonviolence singing the spirituals in my church growing up than I ever learned from when I traveled to India um, and, mm. and studied those who studied Gandhi. And mm. that in itself was like a really important reminder to me that, um, oh, there, there are different ways of arriving at this revelation. Um, and that, as you were saying earlier, Lee, the practice of it and a practice um, from being slapped and um, weeping, but wanting to be faithful uh, as a child to um, having your food spat in and then also spitting in it, but without spitting back. Um, that, that's your own little evolution. And you hadn't read Walter Wink at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the, the Holy Spirit is able to do its work without. That's right. Brother yes. Wink, who Amen. Since lost. Amen. Yeah. Right. Yes. <laughs> but, but Lee, if you were to um, go through uh, Wink's concise popularization of um, a, a liberative reading, uh, how would you sketch that for us? Yeah, well, um, first is that construct I mentioned a minute ago, right? So there's fight, there's flight, natural human reactions, and then Jesus points us to a third way. And so he'll, he works through these texts uh, suggesting that Jesus is concretely suggesting certain third way texts. So uh, turn the other cheek, for example, he will say that um, there, and it's been 20 years or eight, 15 years since I've, uh, I've read the, these exegesis, exegesis closely, but uh, Wink will point to um, that there were actually legal sanctions um, in, in the ancient world in which if you, um, and, and certain social norms. So if, if someone, if you slap someone and you're a, you're a superior slapping an inferior. You would you would never do that with an open hand, mm. but you would do it with a backhanded slap. Mm -hmm. And so, if someone slaps you on the cheek, and then you turn to them the other cheek, they're left with slapping you with an open hand, uh, for which there could actually be fines, mm. or uh, they could hit you with their fist. And if they hit you with their fist, they've made you their you have made them their equal. And so it's this way of turning the social norms on their head or go. Uh, if someone demands you go with them one mile, you go with them two miles. There were fines against the Roman soldiers if they were to force someone to carry their pack for more than a mile. And so here, here Jesus is saying, look, you get to the one mile marker. Don't throw the pack down. Just say to the officer, Hey, I'll carry it for you another mile. And then all of a sudden the officer is saying, no, 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 please don't do that. No, no, stop, stop. No, I don't want you to carry it for me a second mile. And again, you found a way to shift the power dynamic. And again, you're not doing to them what they were doing to you, but you're also insisting I'm a human being. Um, we have an equality as human beings and I won't play this game as we go. And so he, he continues that sort of exegesis, I think in very helpful sorts of ways. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the neatest summaries of it um, in verse 39 uh, and how we translate um, uh, what's often been translated in English since the King James Version and Wink makes the joke that um, uh, it should not surprise us that the King's men decided to translate a text, um, do not resist evil instead of do not violently resist. Right. And the difference that that makes and how helpful it is to think, oh, 
Um, Paul is clearly familiar with um, Jesus' teachings as he writes Romans 12. And in verse 19, um, when it's summarized, verse 19, like do not overcome evil with evil, but over, uh, verse 21, with evil with good. Uh, overcome it um, with good, that this is actually, um, it has the same dynamic built into it that is actually in Matthew 5, 39, do not violently resist evil. And once we get that bit right, um, we can understand how Gandhi often summarized it as non-cooperation with evil as much as a moral obligation as cooperation with good. So yeah. this is about how, how do we actually respond to the kid who spat um, in our food um, without becoming that kid um, and entering into that dynamic, but actually unmasking um, and uh, revealing what's going on as the cross does, which right. I find incredibly helpful that this is actually about the practicalities of participating in the cross or what the early Anabaptists would call walking in the resurrection. And I love that play, that the, the way of the cross is what it is to walk in resurrection. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, that was a very significant part in my uh, formation was uh, I alluded to a moment ago, you know, I, I didn't know that my own tradition had such a rigorous commitment to nonviolence mm. in the 19th century until I was in seminary. Mm-hmm. And um, my, one of my church history professors introduced us to these uh, stories of nonviolent resistance. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, there was, there was one particular gentleman who just refused to um, participate in the, in the war. And um, he, was, um, he was arrested. He was sent to one of the camps and went on hunger strike because he wasn't even going to participate in the labor that was being forced upon him. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading this story, you know, it's a bizarre story. Uh, this, this man went on hunger strike and uh, then the, he was being very harshly treated. And they finally decided to put a feeding tube down his throat and to force feed him. And one of the guards who was disgusted with him took a cockroach and threw it into the feeding solution. And so this guy's sitting there with the, with the tube down his throat and all he has to do is reach up and pinch the tube to stop the cockroach. Uh, but he lets it just go right on down. Oh and I, and, and, and this guy was raised in North Alabama and Dorothy day knew him and wow. he, he influenced Dorothy day. And I, and he was in my tradition, you know, he grew wow. up in the church of Christ up in North Alabama and I never heard about this guy. And moreover, I didn't realize that even on my own campus, uh, Lipscomb, that I went to as, a, as an undergrad and that then I teach at now, you know, if you walk around our campus, there's Lipscomb, there's Harding Hall, there's McQuitty gymnasium, there's the Elam dorm, um, that all of those people were pacifists <laughs> and, and I had no idea. Right. And, and so in the 19th century, our whole tradition was so deeply formed in the notion, notion of the kingdom of God and an insistence upon, we are called to this creative way of being in the world, a third way of being in the world. Uh, but we had lost that by the time you get to the latter part of the 20th century because of the American narrative. And we'd be, begun to be so deeply formed in the American narrative that we had lost that narrative uh, from the 19th century. And so then all of a sudden I realized, oh, well, we didn't always just narrow this to personal legalisms. It was a much more rigorous sort of ethic um, that a lot of our forefathers knew and practiced, mm-hmm. but uh, it had not made its way down to me uh, through uh, the practices of our church tradition. 
Wow, wow. that's really interesting. So maybe switching gears a little bit, um, I'm so just thinking about your book. And I mean, number one, I just want to say that it is, it was a thrill to read. Um, I enjoyed mm, engaging uh, from the from the start in the titles of the chapters, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it got me right away. I was hooked. Um, and I, and I, I, like, I must I mean, say, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with my little smart assy chapter titles. Yeah, yeah. No, you're picking up non-violent picking of fights, right? <laughs> shall I share with the listeners just a, a, a little yeah, taste? Yeah, you should. Uh, proposition yes, one, history is not one damn thing after another, which is fine yeah. for Australians to say, but I know that's kind of like, uh, yeah. let's say it's a different thing. Proposition two, the end of history has already begun. Proposition three, America, American hope is a bastard. Uh, proposition, it's, it sounds better if we say it with your accent, Lee. Uh, <laughs> proposition four, Christianity is neither a prostitute nor a chaplain. Proposition five, the United States is not the hope of the world. And it just gets better. Like it's, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. Yeah. And it just builds on it, right? Each chapter is <laughs> building on the next one. So I was like, all right. Yeah, no, that's good. But and like I said earlier, um, this book, whether you had planned for it for this moment or not, it's so timely. And I think that um, hopefully it can be a really meaningful resource for Christians who I think there's enough folks who are feeling disoriented around, you know, just the meaningless. And I think you, I mean, you step on everybody's feet, right? Around the way that partisan <laughs> politics just shapes people's so Christian So that's where I get it from, Lee. <laughs> Is that where you get it from? Everybody, right? Um, but it, it's, it's needed, right? These are conversations that are deeply needed. And so, and even, yeah. I mean, simple, definite, you know, Christianity as an interpretation of history, Christianity yeah. as a politic, Christianity, maybe more controversial, Christianity is not a religion, right, uh, which is even more controversial, or at least for some, in some ways, I guess, in fact, I had wondered when I heard, I was like, do I agree with him, and I was like, I mean, I guess I agree with him, with you, based on how you were defining, right, in the liberal, yeah, yeah. privatized sense, then sure, right. and I, yeah. I agree yeah. with that, yeah, but, um, but I really appreciated it, and uh, I already got, um, uh, plans for this book for to share with some folks so yeah yeah thank you thank you yeah as do we our side Lee. maybe um to give people a little bit of a, a taste test um one of the ones that might be more provocative for uh who um, i mean listeners of inverse are diverse but um christianity is not a counterculture might be the one that um raises eyebrows for a number of um our listeners I'm aware that as you were even describing, um, uh, and uh, I, I talk about it in terms of there's the must-do reading of the Sermon on the Mount, and then there's the can't-do reading of the Sermon on the Mount, and trying to invite people into a, a God-does reading, like what is a grace-empowered. My most Lee Camp quote ever um, that I use all the time is that um, grace is not just pardon, it's empowerment. Mm. And a sense that um, what we're being invited into here is an empowering understanding of participating um, in, in the life of God, like um, that that's what um, the cross frees us for and um, uh, that's what re resurrection power is for. What are you arguing in the chapter that Christianity isn't um, uh, a counterculture? Like, yeah. Yeah, so, well, it's it's certainly um, it's common, especially among those who are kind of Anabaptist friendly. 
to speak in terms of <laughs> Christianity being countercultural, right? And mm, it's, yeah. it's, it's a way of saying you want to emphasize the, the teachings of Christ by saying we, we must be countercultural. And what, what I'm trying to suggest in that chapter is that that is an altogether meaningless assertion. Uh, it, it simply doesn't say anything of interest, right? right? Because culture is simply the matrix of social, uh, social practices, right? And so uh, the English language, you know, so, so we say, well, we're supposed to be countercultural. What does that mean, right? Are we supposed to not speak English? Are we supposed to not like in Nashville country music? Are we uh, not supposed to like barbecue? Uh, are we supposed to, to refuse to enjoy NCAA football? What does it mean to be countercultural? <laughs> And um, it, it's, it's terribly important for us instead to think in terms of what does it mean to be specifiably Christian? And we, we, can, we can change our posture vis-a-vis -vis our surrounding cultural context. It will just do away with this notion that we're supposed to be against you or against mm. these people who are not Jesus followers. We're not supposed to be against them. You know, we're, we're, to, we're to be for the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but that means that we must be very careful about doing cultural discernment, right? And so there will be some particular things that we should celebrate. Uh, there, there, there are certain you know, artistic or poetic or musical or um, social policies that we can altogether celebrate. And then there'll be other things that we'll say, no, 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 we simply will not participate in that, right? The, the nationalist agenda or the, uh, the weapons of mass destruction agenda or whatever the case may be, we, we say we won't participate in that. And then there are other sorts of cultural practices that we can say, well, um, there's something that's potentially good about this. And if we can try to find a way to tweak this or, or, or adjust this, then we can participate in this and celebrate this and we can find some redemptive good that can come out of this. And so it's just a way of, of helping us think more creatively and constructively and give us a different posture towards our neighbors, I think, uh, yeah. rather than thinking that we're counter to think, no, we're, we're to be the witnesses of the kingdom of God. And that sometimes requires us to say no. It often requires us to say yes. And sometimes it requires us to say yes, but. Um, and so always being much sharper about looking deeply at the meaning of a cultural practice, looking deeply at all of the different sorts of facets of any given cultural practice and find what it means to participate in that. Yeah, I, I mean, this is exciting for me because uh, I love the way that um, your work, Lee, and Drew's work in bringing together, um, you know, an Anabaptist witness, what the, the Black Church tradition and Anabaptism, um, uh, how, how they um, feed and encourage and um, sharpen uh, one another. I'm, uh, with the sh short amount of time that we've got left, I almost want to um, just give Drew permission to um, open up uh, any kind of questions or um, things that arise, because I think your work is so helpful given your particular context. And I know you're both in the country, but it's actually quite two different contexts. The, the right. experience of um, uh, the black church um, prophetic witness and um, uh, white churches in America and even things around engagement as um, a form of um, domination um, uh, versus thinking about non-engagement as a form of domination 
as well. Sometimes um, Anabaptist folk, when they talk about engaging politics, it's that the only way that it can be engaged is um, uh, as a power play. While um, the imagination that's present in the prophetic black church um, witness is quite different because of social location. Um, right. Lee, it's you that got me reading James Cone for the first time. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to open it up to um, Drew p- particular questions that, um, or, or things that come to mind while reading this um, or vice versa. Yes, I, w- I would love that as well myself. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime I read Anabaptists, I mean, the one thing that I'm always intrigued in, intrigued with is thinking about um, how the Constantinian critique shows up, but sometimes maybe not always necessarily engaging what I call the Columbusian critique, right? Um, <laughs> and how, how those two things flow together. I mean, I think that, so, I mean, I think that, but I mean, I, I would say that for most Anabaptists that that's, so how do we um, extend, so it's not even that, like I, I loved everything in the book, um, but then how do we extend that even further to, to add another layer of critique in terms of something that has deeply distorted and shaped Christianity, right? Mm, um, in America. Yeah. Um, and then on the, maybe on the engagement side, which maybe I don't know if this is what you're, wondering uh jared more in terms of i was wondering if if people as they're reading the book like it probably will hopefully stop them from engaging in the partisan politics will it will it create an imagination for other ways which maybe is right the ways that black church traditions without power have prophetically spoken truth back to the powers that be Mm -hmm. um, so that some Christians have an imagination already an embodied uh, model of what that can look like. And maybe other Christians may not know where to go from there. Right. They might feel stuck. Um, Mm. So those are interesting things to to think about. Yeah. I do think, yeah, I think that's terribly helpful. Um, I think that one of the differences uh, in my mind, in this book, most recent book versus Mere Discipleship, is that uh, in this book, I'm trying to make a lot more space, at least for what you just, I heard you describe, Drew, in that, um, I mean, to, to use the language of, you know, 20th century um, American Christian ethics, um, I, I, I make a nod there in one of the chapters to the ways in which Reinhold Niebuhr, for example, right. even though I think Niebuhr is so wrong, there's a space within which his realism can be terribly helpful. Right. Um, and it, it's, it's how do we hold on to the normativity of Christ for the Christian disciple while also making space for realizing that uh, there are certain relative political goods that are true political goods. Mm. Right. And right. so, just because someone doesn't uphold the Lordship of Christ or doesn't accept Christian nonviolence doesn't mean that there's no difference between a tyrannical dis- dictator versus the rule of law that accepts some sort of something like just war criteria or even, even the moderated death penalty, right? The, the, that's better 
in right. certain significant ways than a tyrannical dictatorship is. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and, and so, the, and, and, and I think for, I, th I think it's only people of privilege who could ever act as if one is not better than the other. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and, right. and so I, I think it's offensive um, for someone to act like, well, you know, Jesus has got this. We don't need to worry about the, that kind of stuff. It's like, well, right. what, what the hell do you mean? You know, yeah. people are getting trampled on over here. Of course you care about right. this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I, and, I, I and think we're supporting carefully for it. Yeah. And to that, what I, I appreciate what you're saying because, um, and I, I did pick that up in your book. I noticed that. And, but I have noticed like sometimes I've, I've heard, I've seen white and a Baptist say like, so effectiveness actually becomes a bad word. And I would That's say, right. well, effectiveness isn't necessarily a bad word. You don't want right. to make it the, the rule that, that uh, informs your ethics, but, but that doesn't mean that you don't effectively want to make change for your neighbors because exactly. they're going through hell. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. and so I think that those um, ways of kind of um, wrestling with maybe the taken for granted terms, even within the Anabaptist tradition yeah. need to be wrestled with uh, more, which yeah. I did hear in some of your work. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank and it, even Lee, your chapter on Christianity, not being a religion, the, the insistence that, um, uh, Christianity is a reading of history and that our effect, when we talk about the cross, we're actually talking about our, our means of effectiveness. Um, yes. So it's, right. it's not, um, it's not a, I, I always find it fascinating the very points in which um, uh, uh, Buddhist or even um, self Gnostic kind of thinking comes into people's talk of nonviolence is around uh, the, the refusal to tackle injustice and a an interest in either um, uh, creation, uh, being indifferent towards creation or being indifferent towards the body, um, and that uh, it, it doesn't really matter. And suddenly, there's talk of um, are my hands clean, and that's the goal of nonviolence. Where um, the, the goal of the cross is not the cross; it's the coming of the kingdom. Exactly. Um, yeah. And if, if we if we miss that faithfulness is going to be really difficult, but so is, um, uh, who, who wrote, um, kingdom ethics with Glenn Stason? Um, oh, and David um, Gushy. 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 Right. He right. had this, um, uh, fascinating review, um, of, uh, reflecting back on um, kingdom ethics where he talks about how it's too hopeful when it comes to the kingdom and mm. um, actually uh, our, our talk and focus on kingdom coming um, needs to be checked in terms of like a, a realism a, around suffering um, and how a lot of North America. And I mean, I, I love Dr. King is one of the biggest influences on my life. It's what um, made me uh, uh swallowing everything that you taught so easy is because I was so primed in um, Martin King in my household, Lee. Um, but there, there is such positivity that might not be appropriate, like the, this positivist kind of vision. Um, uh, and, yeah, it's those kind of things which I appreciate about this book. It's, it's gracious and nuanced and uh, has a go at everyone. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and I do think, I think that that's, that is itself a terribly important political witness that we desperately need in the American church. I don't know what mm -hmm. it's like in Australia, if it's as polarized as it is here, but 
we're so polarized and it's like, and I, and I find this in myself. It's like, even when I see something good on quote the other side, even though I'm trying not to be this side versus the other, um, Sometimes it can be, I, I catch myself uh, being hesitant to honor something that seems truly good, you know, on, mm. on, on quote to the other side. And it's like that, that's a sign to me that that is the American partisanship that's forming me rather than my Christian discipleship. Yeah. Right. So that we just, and, and that means we also need to be able to critique both left and right, uh, right or whatever sort of partisan position there may be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my my hope for America is that you will find a left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just cheap shots, cheap shots, Jared. Cheap Unfair. Shots. <laughs> um, Lee, I want to honour your time. This has been a delight. You're welcome back anytime. Um, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I love you deeply. I'm so thankful for your influence uh, on my life, and uh, this book is a gift, as you are. So, thanks heaps. Thank you. And I love you. And I'm very grateful for this time together. And uh, Drew, it's a, a great uh, pleasure to make your acquaintance and yeah. pray God's blessings on your work and ministry there in, in, uh, Phil- in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you two should plot yeah. and plan together now. Yeah, yes. yeah. We'll have to sometime. We'll have to make it. And make sure, please say um, hi to Richard Hughes for me. I shall. Um, I sure yeah. will. Yeah. And, and again, well, thank, you thank you for your work. I've appreciated both mere discipleship and now this one. And I'm definitely plugging it. Everyone needs to go out and buy Scandalous Witness. It's a timely read, um, especially right now. Yeah, thank get you into the craziness, even the even crazier electoral cycle. Thank you. I will. Uh, I, and I, I would love uh, everyone as well. Uh, we're actually starting a new podcast ourselves, May 21. Uh, and right. uh, you can more about that at uh, tokensshow.com or leasycamp.com. And uh, we're going to be doing our own kind of uh, theological, uh, our exercise in public theology uh, that we're going to be, it's going to be great fun. Yeah. uh, Tokens is a heap of fun. So thanks. Before you go and send um, our love to um, Laura and your boys, would you pray for our listeners and this time together, Lee? Can I ask that of you? Yes. I would be delighted to pray for all of us. Gracious God, we give great thanks uh, for the gifts of this day, and we give great thanks for the gifts of your redemption and your call to be witnesses to your kingdom. Mm. And we pray, O God, that you may grant in us a simple trust, uh, but it's not simplistic, Mm. uh, a deep trust that is not naive, Mm. uh, but creative faithfulness, that is inspired and empowered by the ways of your spirit. Uh, Bless uh, these brothers and bless all those who have joined us in listening to our conversation. And may you grant us all grace uh, to live with joy and to flourish in the ways of your kingdom. Mm. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, good brother. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you. Likewise. Um, And yeah, we'll find another excuse to do it again. I look forward to it. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.